This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This week and next, we will have two poetry supplements. After talking about one of the worst romances in literature, we will switch to one of literature's great love stories. It's the romance between Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Um, Although you would never guess it after reading the poem we're doing today. (laughs) The poem, My Last Duchess, it's a very twisted poem. You know, Christine, now to think about it, there's not really a lot of great love stories that we've read. So many of them end poorly. (laughs) You know, we've got Romeo and Juliet, that comes to mind. Uh, but even in the real life stories, that they aren't all that awesome. And I can't say that I'm all that impressed with the love story of Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley. No, I would think not. And there's not much to say about Petrarch and Laura that defines true love either. Although I will say, Petrarch got a lot of mileage out of that non-relationship. <laughs> right. Oh, and, and let's not forget Hester and Dimsdale. That didn't end well, did it? No, or William Butler Yeats and Maud gone. Oh, good grief. <laughs> well, now that you mention it, whether we're talking about characters or writers, there's quite a bit of tragedy involved in all this. Well, that's true. But of course, doesn't great love tragedies always produce great art? Uh, sometimes things do go right in love, however. Uh, there's hope for the Noras and the Tolvolds of the Ooh, world. Oh, that one didn't go well either. <laughs> well, I want to introduce uh, one love story that does go right. Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Except, here's a teaser, if you want the love part, stick around for one more episode because we're not talking about the happy ending today. Today, we're going to start in this episode by discussing Robert Browning and his most nefarious villain in My Last Duchess. And then we'll look at Elizabeth and her infectious love sonnets next time, and then we'll talk about their personal story when we do that. Well, great. Uh, so Robert Browning, what, what I find unusual about Robert Browning is that there is 
nothing unusual <laughs> about Robert Browning. I'm so used to all these British poets and their colorful lives, but he's kind of a non-scandalous person. And well, if you don't count the part about his elopement with Elizabeth. Well, that's really true. And that's exactly how he liked it. Perhaps a man of his time. Let's Get back into his time and talk about it. The Victorian age, it's that glorious period of English history. Britain held the position of world leadership. When I think of it, I think of it maybe as how some people think of the United States today. Am I right about that? Well, yes. And, and just for clarification, the Victorian period is considered somewhere between the 1830s to 1900. Yeah, I, I probably should have said that. Taking out the literature part, Gary, what do we know or what should we think when we think Victorian period? (laughs) Uh, Well, how much time do we have? (laughs) No, no, one minute. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, well, there's a lot. It was an incredible period. And Queen Victoria was incredibly popular. And when you say Victorian England, um, there's a lot that comes to mind, both good and bad. But the first thing that comes to my mind, and please bear this in mind, I'm an American, so... There's a disclaimer. Uh, We're always talking about impressions from this side of the Atlantic. But the first thing that comes to my mind is just the incredible amount of material progress. Uh, There was unequal production of goods, and England was on the front end of the Industrial Revolution. There was a lot of innovation. There was a growing middle class. But then again, on the flip side, with that, there's all the social problems that go with this material progress. And um, things that we think of uh, Charles Dickens writing novels about, you know, street children and pollution from the coal and the sort of things we've been talking about in other episodes, like when we talked about where the Bronte sisters grew up or where William Blake's chimney sweepers lived. And these problems are the things that lots of people, but specifically a lot of writers, were concerned about and commenting on. John Ruskin famously said that the real test of a community is not how much wealth it is producing, but what kind of people it is producing. And, of course, he's right about that. It it was something that would take years to sort out. And, you know, finding that moral balance between production and exploitation, is that's something every society wrestles with and always will. Well, the Brownings, surprisingly, were really not a part of any protest movement, to be honest. And the reason I say that uh, is because a big chunk of their lives together, well, their entire married life, uh, they were in Italy. Well, uh, didn't Ibsen live in Italy? Yes. And and (laughs) Keats lived in Italy? Yes. Okay. Well, Italy seems to be responsible for a lot of uh, great English language writing. (laughs) I know. That's ironic. But getting back to the Brownings... Robert Browning grew up in Camberwell, uh, a suburb boy. That, at the time, was a suburb of London. He was the only son of a fairly affluent family. He was the product of private tutoring, world travel, a lot of what today we would think of by calling privilege. But none of that made him a famous poet. (laughs) (laughs) It, It wasn't for his lack of trying. I mean, I was impressed to see how supportive his family was to the point of paying for his work to get published. and uh, I was also impressed by how bumpy his start was. It seems his work was not well received initially, and in fact, it was met with a bit of uh, mean-spirited and extremely embarrassing criticism. <laughs> it really was. John Stuart Mill said that Browning was parading, and I quote, a morbid state of self-worship. Oh, I know. That's so bad. After he published his first poem named Pauline when he was 21 years old. I guess 21 can produce that sort of stuff. But 
it was kind of mean, and that would have wiped me out, but it didn't wipe Brownie out. He reacted to those criticisms in what I think of as kind of a positive way, clever maybe. He's changed his style stylistically. It swore off all the confessional writing, the personal stuff. Instead, he modified it uh, from what he had done in Pauline into something that he's now famous for, this thing that today we call the dramatic monologue. Exactly. Uh, Now, Christy, I think we mentioned this before, but what is a dramatic monologue? And more importantly, why should we care? I'm so glad you asked that question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's like you didn't ask me to ask you, you know. Okay, I did. But there. let me start by saying... Uh, That the reason, and I think this is important to think about for a minute, that most people don't like poetry in general is because, and I hear this all the time, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't say anything. And I know high school teachers, I'm guilty of this too, we can kind of take the blame for how people think of of poetry. Um, We've droned on and on with terms and periods. I remember a few years ago, I know this is a tangent, but I was starting a junior English class, and I said something like, today we're going to explore the key features of American romanticism and some of its greatest hits. And a kid, you know, retorted back from the back row with a comment, and he said, then that is why I got up and came to school this morning. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I understand this is a kid, he's an athlete. This sounded like the, you know, death sentence to him. How could anything be more boring than American romanticism. Although I will say it's definitely not. I don't want to digress, but it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I want to remind uh, our listeners that uh, several books back, we talked about the idea that during this time period, poetry writing was the impressive stuff. Novel writing was considered second tier. Yeah, lowbrow. So if you were a competitive wordsmith, you were going to do poetry and, and not novels. And um, anyway, uh, I hope you changed the student's mind about the writings of Edgar Allan Poe and Walt Whitman. Well, I most certainly gave it a go. <laughs> but where I'm heading is this. Uh, the reason why people think poetry is boring is because we think of these confessionals, people whining about their lives, their loves, their feelings, how much wrong they suffered, that sort of thing. And we don't find a purpose in that kind of reading. We think of writing as a form of communicating information. I'm reading because I want to gather information. And we're annoyed with poetry because we're reading and we can't find it. There isn't any information. And so we ask, at least my students ask, the most natural question is, why are you making us read this? Why am I reading this? Well, we shouldn't read poetry for the same reasons that we read an article on Snapchat. We're not supposed to get information like we might get in a newspaper editorial. We should think of it more intuitively, and we should judge it on a more intuitive criteria. Did I learn something? Did it make me cry, laugh? Was it unexpected? Did it change my mind on something that I was thinking? That sort of thing. Well, I hear all that. I do. But isn't learning or gathering information a large part of what writing is about? Well, of course, that is true. But it's a terrible way to read poetry. Because if you do that, you cannot enjoy it. What makes great poetry is not the transmission of information at all. 
What makes great poetry is the exact same thing that makes great plays or great novels or great music. They're voicing ideas about the world, spotlighting experiences we struggle with, saying things we've seen but we can't articulate, something we might have noticed but we didn't think about. Great poems are not about the poet. They're about us, the reader, and they're about our experiences in the world. They're about understanding people in our lives, emotions that we feel, things that populate humans' existence. We're not alone in the world, and we can read things from a 100 years ago from a guy I don't know, but he seems to know a guy I know. <laughs> Robert Browning did this sort of thing extremely well, and I want to explain how uh, he kind of did it. I would appreciate that tremendously (laughs) if you would. Well, first thing to notice, and you have to keep this in mind for all poems, but specifically for this one, that the speaker of a poem is not the author of the poem. In other words, a poem may be in the first person, but that doesn't mean that the author is the one speaking and he's not speaking about himself necessarily. A poem can say something like, I love chopped onions. <laughs> and the poet probably, or maybe, or who knows, hates chopped, poem, or chopped onions. The speaker can say that because he's a completely separate character that's different from the poet. And in the world that he's creating, the speaker that's talking does indeed like chopped onions. We understand that to be true for plays. We know that Nora isn't Ibsen or he's not Torvald. But when we read poetry, we slip into the habit of thinking that this is somebody confessing something about their life. And sometimes that's true. We're going to see that it's definitely true for Elizabeth Barrett Browning, but it's usually not true. And that brings us to dramatic monologues. In the dramatic monologue, I mumbled that word, but in the (laughs) dramatic monologue, especially Browning's dramatic monologue, it's obvious, it's extremely apparent that the speaker is not the poet. Browning wants this to be clear. He is not masking a technique trying to say, this is me. I'd like to interject a thought here. Forever, on all these episodes, we have talked about writers writing out of their experience. Novel writers are writing out of their experience. And you're telling us that poets don't necessarily. They do. But they're not speaking from their... They're not saying that the speaker of their poem is their view. They're just talking about the world. It'll make sense. Okay. When you see something like The Last Duchess, he's talking about something twisted in humanity. Uh We don't know a guy, I hope you don't know a guy that's as twisted as the guy from this poem, (laughs) because this guy is a little bit unrelatable. But as we read the monologue, Browning pushes forth this very aggressive commentary about how people treat each other, but he's doing it in a kind of ironic, detached sort of way. It's entertaining, but at the same time, he really is commenting. He's showing, not telling. He's not confessing. He's showing how humans behave towards other humans, and it's not him. We will allow this, well, he will allow, really, this twisted character to just talk, and we're going to see the thoughts in this guy's mind. This guy is going to confess, tell us information about himself, his view of the world, 
his behaviors and we're going to say, oh, that's how these twisted people think. We can judge for ourselves how nuts this guy really is. Then we can extrapolate to people that we know, no, they may not be as extreme as him, but maybe they kind of are like him or view the world the same way this twisted guy kind of views the world. Okay, well, you're you're up my alley right now because <laughs> I have to say, as a student of psychology, uh, my last duchess is one of the more psychologically twisted characters and, uh, and fascinating characters I've read about since we've started the podcast. And the inordinate level of hubris Browning um, expresses through this Duke makes most egomaniacs we know look kind of small time and amateurish. Yeah, and although none of us go to dinner parties expecting to see pictures of dead wives behind curtains, we may know someone we think to have an absurd level of vanity very disproportionate to their accomplishments. And they're hinting at maybe a similar level, if not as extreme level of hubris. That to me is how this poem connects to a doll's house. Torvald Helmer, he's a middle-class suburban guy, but he does express to his, in his way in an unusual degree of possessiveness. And it's kind of similar to what we're seeing in this blown up Renaissance setting. Torvald isn't going to murder his wife, but he definitely has reduced her to a work of art. She's a treasure, something comparable to a portrait on a wall that can be brought out and admired and then put back on the shelf. That portrait better not exercise any sort of will of her own. And if she knows what's best, she better stay mostly quiet and unsmiling towards strangers. Now, you may think, what are you talking about? If you're unfamiliar with the poem, let me just unconfuse you. That's, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's not really Good English. Word. Yeah. Uh, in the poem by Browning, the speaker of the poem is a Renaissance duke from Italy, supposedly, an extremely wealthy guy. His pedigree includes a 900-year-old name, so the roots are deep. Uh, when I read this poem, one of the first questions I had was, is this a real person? So, Gary, when you explored this, did you figure out if this was a real person, or is this somebody that Browning made up entirely? <laughs> well, you put the pressure on me now. Yeah. So it's interesting that you asked that because, as you know, I've always thought that, as we said, writers write from their experience or what they know. Uh, but in the case of this particular poem, um, if this is an actual person, I'm not really sure we can say that it is. And we do know that Browning uh, was well-traveled, and in 1838, he spent two months in northern Italy studying uh, Italian history and legends. And this poem seems to be set somewhere in that area. Uh, there's a lot of scholarship to say maybe the town of Ferrara, which for those of us less familiar with northern Italy, think of it as the north of Florence, but south of Verona uh, or Venice. This may or may not be the right town or the right duke, but it's an interesting hypothesis that the duchess in the story could be Lucretia. Cosimo de' Medici's younger daughter, who was married to Alfonso of the Este family. Who doesn't love the Medicis? There you go. Well, <laughs> she supposedly died of tuberculosis, but Alfonso showed no interest in her as a wife to the point that he left her three days after their wedding in Florence. And uh, he left without his new bride for France, and he didn't even see Lucretia for the next two years. And when he did come back to Ferrara, he sent for his wife. She moved to Ferrara, and a year later, 
barely 17 years old, she was found dead. Now, it could have been tuberculosis. It could have been poisoning. We all know the Renaissance is famous for a <laughs> disproportionate share of people being poisoned to death, and including a few members of the de' Medici family. And, of course, uh, Catherine de' Medici was famous herself for poisoning people. Oh, yes. I learned that in Rain, that TV show. But anyway, getting back to our Duke, what about this Duke? from Ferrara, Alfonso II. What kind of guy was he in general? Does he have the profile of somebody that might poison their <laughs> wife? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, it seems he was something of a jerk. <laughs> okay. Historians, and let me quote one, called him, and I love this, an immoderately arrogant and conceited and prided himself beyond measure upon his bravery, intelligent, and his ancient descent. With all that he was vengeful and ever ready to pursue a feud. So, there you have that commentary. It seems a possibility, but um, of course, as we will see as we read the poem, Christy, are we even sure the Duke in The Last Duchess murders his wife? I mean, Renaissance murderers were kind of mysterious like that. You just never knew. <laughs> I guess be an so. For a I guess joke. so. Before we get out of the history part, though, and start reading the poem, let me ask this question because it's not just the name of the duke that makes me think you know maybe it was a the guy who killed the medici girl uh in the poem the duke keeps a portrait of his murdered wife behind a curtain so that he can admire her and show her off when he wants to is there a portrait of lucretia that we know of today that might have inspired this poem i also am interested to know about this um, painter in the poem called fra pandolf is that a real painter the third question I had, because this is the next character in the in the poem, you know, any emissaries? There's an emissary in the poem. Is there one that we know of historically who would have been representing the next duchess that followed the last murdered duchess, if that makes any sense? Is there any historical evidence, I guess, about any of the other people in the poem? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> the first hurdle in uh, definitely declaring this poem to be about Lucretia de' Medici is that there is no such painting that we know of, and there's no such famous painter as Fra Pandolf. But if we um, assume that there might have been, but it's just gone history, and, and we work on the assumption that the last duchess is Lucretia de' Medici, that means the second wife would have to be Barbara of Austria, so, I mean, there's a long story. Uh, their marriage uh, only lasted eight years before she died. And she was most famous for her work with destitute young girls and even founded a, a house for them. And after she died, Alfonso married a third time, this time to Margarita, the 15-year-old niece of his uh, wife, Barbara of Austria. Well, he did like him young. <laughs> Whether this guy's the murderer or not, he's clearly creepy. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I think so. And honestly, it doesn't matter. This stuff is just interesting stuff to discuss at your trivia night. I agree. Uh, I've read enough Machiavelli to know that those Renaissance boys were not above poisoning people for just about mm. any reason. And that routine. I'm sure it's not the point. Routine. Brownie doesn't tell us who it may be because it's a composite of a couple of people. Maybe it's just a made-up person. But in a more important sense, my point is it's just kind of metaphorical. This duke is a, the metaphor of a familiar ego. A, maybe one Ibsen might have latched onto somebody that a reader of Ibsen might recognize. 
And yes, this poem is about objectifying women, obviously. Again, that's why we're featuring it this week after the Ibsen play. But if you think of it as the metaphor for the ultimate egoist, that could be any number of people, people we know that are that stupid and delusional that they, at the end of the day, see themselves as the Neptune in their world. (laughs) As far-fetched as that seems to everyone else. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'd say look no farther than a Twitter feed. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So, shall we read, uh, Christy, as this is a dramatic monologue, to what degree should we bring dramatic reading to the text? We should bring a very dramatic reading to the text. So, do you want to give it a go? Let's try. Okay, let's break it up little by little, and then we can put it back together dramatically and see if it makes sense uh, after we've had some time to sort it out line by line. Well, let me read it then. That's my last duchess painted on the wall looking as if she were alive. All right, sentence one. We are to see that there's a duchess painted on the wall. We'll understand in a minute that that is probably a fresco, but that doesn't necessarily matter. She looks as if she were alive. That implies that she's dead. We also know that she belonged to the Duke. It's his duchess, and we know it's the last one he had. We should also be alarmed that the tone, as you read it, it's really quite detached. Garrett, I hope if something bad happens to me, you don't talk to me that like that when you're showing a picture. <laughs> there's no tenderness. There's pride, but there's no tenderness. All right, should we keep going? Yes. I call that piece of wonder now. Fra Pandolf's hands worked busily a day, and there she stands. Will it please you sit and look at her? All right, sentence two and three. The piece is a wonder. The woman's not a wonder. The piece is the wonder. Be it the painting or the woman as an object, it's very detached. But we're also told that she was painted by Fra Pandolf. Gary, you said we don't know anything about this guy for sure, but there is. But is there any historical context that helps us understand the subtext of why he's throwing in a name here? <laughs> well, Fra is short for friar, and so this is a Catholic monk or priest, and that tells us that there is no sexual hanky-panky going on. And uh, friars take vows of chastity, and although we know that there were those that broke them, there were more that didn't, and we should presume that here as well and also he he worked busily a day and that that may imply that this is a fresco because a fresco painting had to be done in one day like with michelangelo in a sistine chapel because when the plaster dries you're done but the nice thing about them is that once they do dry they last forever and if you wanted beauty to never die a fresco would be the way to go (laughs) well notice the rhetorical question Whoever the Duke is talking to is basically being told to sit. Sit down and admire the Duchess, the last Duchess. And we're going to see that this guy, the one that he's talking to, is the emissary for the new Duchess. So in a sense, it's not really appropriate to sit down and have a minute and take a stare at the last (laughs) Mrs. So you have to wonder, why is this guy insisting that this emissary does this? The next sentence is really very long, and this is the one that makes everybody get confused. 
I said Fra Pandolf by design for never read strangers like you that pictured countenance, the depth and the passion of its earnest glance, but to myself they turned, since none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you, but I, but to myself they turned, since none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you, but I, and seemed as they would ask me if they durst, how such a glance came there, so not the first are you to turn and ask thus. All right. There's a lot going on. I know. It takes a couple of rereads just to make sense of it. But let me put it in uh, normal words. Basically, he's saying that Frau Pandolf, on purpose, captured a very specific facial expression in the face of his ex-wife. She had this certain depth and passionate smile. The way he's suggesting here, it's almost like, look at her sexy smile. And according to this duke, he imagines that the guy he's talking to is like everyone else because everyone else in the world, when they see this painting, they all want to ask him, but they don't dare ask him because he is just that intimidating. But what they wish they could ask him if they had the nerve is, who is she looking at when she gives such a sexy glance? And then he is just going to tell this guy, who did not actually ask that question, or even ask to see the painting, who exactly his wife was looking at when she gave this sexy smile. Now, the way he phrases it almost implies that the last Duchess may have... Is he saying that she was cheating on him? Sir, t'was not her husband's presence only called that spot of joy into the Duchess's cheek. Perhaps for all Pandolf chanced to say... Her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much, or paint must never hope to reproduce the faint half-flush that dies along her throat. And there he says it. It wasn't just my presence that gave her that sexy smile. Maybe even Fra Pandolf happened to suggest that, you know, she reveal a little more skin, implying that maybe she liked to show a little more skin, A little more wrist. Oh, it's out of control. (laughs) He goes on to say that paint couldn't possibly reproduce her half flush. It's kind of this pseudo-sexual language that ends, you know, with this reference to death thread along her throat. Dies (laughs) along her throat. Wow. Well, let me interject something here that caught my eye. Um, The way he talks to the guy he's talking to is really condescending. And he makes him sit down. He uses the term sir and you instead of thee or thou. That that would have been more appropriate between men of equal station of the time period. So he's talking down to this guy for whatever reason. Yes. And look at the next two sentences. Such stuff was courtesy, she thought, and cause enough for calling up that spot of joy. She had a heart, how shall I say, too soon made glad, too easily impressed, She looked whatever she looked on, and her looks went everywhere. So he's going on and on about this sexy smile. But here he again implies she's promiscuous. He uses the word stuff. That is a very vague term, which we can use euphemistically to say things we don't want to say out loud. Then he says this. She had a heart. Shall I say? How shall I say? Too soon made glad. That phrase, how shall I say, it's set off with dashes. This duke is stopping, trying to decide how he's 
going to word this behavior of his wife. How shall I say? He's looking for that word. And, you know, the words that he comes up with are too soon made glad. She gets happy too easily. This seems to imply, although less subtly, that my wife flirts inappropriately. Just the very idea that he wants to pretend that he has to find the right word. I mean, he's been rattling on in this perfect iambic pentameter by this point, you know, 22 lines in. And he hasn't had to stop for words before. uh, But he's already told us, as he showed off this picture, you know, he's used to showing it off to a bunch of people. So it seems staged, like this phrase, how shall I say when I'm showing my sexy smile from my wife, when wondering, and as I know you are, who is she smiling at? He's going to continue to imply that his wife was, you know, I don't know, what's the right word here? Promiscuous, like you said earlier. (laughs) What's the right, how shall I say, the right euphemism? Read the next two sentences. Too easily impressed, she liked whatever she looked on, and her looks went everywhere. Sir, twas all one. That last sentence is a telegraphic sentence. Sir, twas all one. It's very short, and the purpose of it is to highlight a very important idea. She looked everywhere, everywhere with that same dang sexy smile. He hated that. (laughs) My favor at her breast, the dropping of the daylight in the west, the bow of cherry, some officious fool broke in the orchard for her, the white mule she rode with round the terrace, all in each would draw from her like the approving speech, or blush at least. She thanked men, good, but thanked somehow, I know not how, as if she ranked my gift of a 900 years old name with anybody's gift. And now when we read this, we're led on to the secret that this guy might possibly be a psychopath. (laughs) Look at what he's jealous at. That duchess presumed to look at the sunset with her sexy smile. A nice guy gave her a cherry. She gave him the sexy smile. She gave her mule the sexy smile. Now we're led to question, is this a sexy smile or is this just a kind smile? It appears she had the audacity to thank people for things that they gave her or were nice to her about. Clearly something that he does not do. And in fact, something she should not do. The only person she should ever be thanking for anything is him. He gave her the most precious thing in the entire universe. His name. And if she thanked other people with the same words... She used to thank him, or if she smiled at people with a kind smile, that is a direct assault to him. Who does she think she is? Just like to throw out a little narcissism alert there. (laughs) Who'd stoop to blame this sort of trifling, even had you skill in speech, which I have not, to make your will quite clear to such an one and say, just this or that, and you disgust me, here you miss or there exceed the mark. And if she let herself be lessened so, nor plainly set her wits to yours, forsooth and made excuse, even then would be some stooping. And I choose never to stoop. And of course, there's a lot of language, but I think by now maybe you're picking up the gist. The tone shifts here. He's getting angrier. He's also throwing out 
more of those dashes, this time to set off phrases. And he's going to say that he doesn't have skill in speech again. Whatever. Of course he has skill in speech. That's the whole point. <laughs> well, it kind of reminds me of when I fussed at my children and said something like, um, uh, I guess I didn't make myself clear when I asked you to clean your room. And you're not really communicating that you were not clear. You're communicating that you were clear and you were ignored. Well, exactly. And apparently he may have told her that certain behaviors of hers, like smiling and thanking people, were disgusting, and she blatantly ignored this. But really, uh, she refused to be lessened. And of course, there's a pun here, because lessons are something that you learn. She refused to be taught, but she also refused to be lessened, as in to be made smaller. Uh, She didn't suit. But here's what's worse. He didn't actually tell her anything. He didn't actually ask her to do anything. He doesn't stoop. For him to actually ask her to not smile or not thank people would be degrading to him. She should just know. I've been told that line before, and and I know you have too. I shouldn't have to tell you this. You should already know it. You should want to do this thing that I want you to do. And by you not knowing or not wanting the right things that I want you to want or all I want you to like, that is a worse infraction. That's a greater insult. How could you not want this thing that I want you to want? And how could you not want to have this behavior that I want you to have? The very idea that I would have to stoop to tell you, that's an insult beyond scope. So Hmm. you may be convinced by now that he's a psycho, but he's got more to say. (laughs) First to confirm, uh, she did not cheat on him, by the way. And it doesn't even seem like she hated him. Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, whenever I passed her. But who passed without much the same smile? That's what I mean. She smiled at him. It seems, as we are now to assume, that she did not have a sexy smile. I'm convinced by this point that this is a kind smile. She smiled kindly at him. And this was an insult because that smile that we see on the wall, that sexy smile that we now can understand is a kind smile. She gave it to other people besides him. That's adultery. Why would she do that? (laughs) That was just too much. So the poor person sitting down and listening to this is supposed to clearly understand that by this point, he had no choice. She had to go. This grew, I gave commands, then all smiles stopped together. There she stands as if alive. So, did he have her executed? I know. It's slightly ambiguous. I gave commands. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I read somewhere that somebody directly asked Browning this question, and one time he replied smugly, I didn't say she had been executed. I said all smiles stopped. (laughs) Maybe he sent her to a convent. But then I read somewhere else that on another time that he definitely did say these were commands to be put to death. So, I mean, he's playing with us. We're left to make that determination for ourselves. I think the person he's talking to for sure thinks the last Duchess was killed. And as we read these lines, this is why I think that, because it looks like he's trying to bolt, (laughs) but the Duke won't let him. Keep reading. (laughs) Getting weird. Will it please you rise? We'll meet the company below then. 
I repeat the count your master's known munificence is ample warrant that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed. Though his fair daughter self, as I vowed at starting, is my object. Nay, we'll go together down, sir. Notice Neptune, though, taming a seahorse, thought a rarity, which claws of Innsbruck cast in bronze for me. How do you think that means the emissary is trying to bolt? <laughs> well, first the Duke tells them to get up for them to go down together to meet the new Duchess, which he calls an object, by the way. But then he says, nay, nay means no, no to what I think the guy was trying to do, because I think the guy is trying to get ahead of him because he says, nay, like, stop, we'll go together. He's not letting this guy out of his sight. He's enjoying this. He wanted to tell this story. He wanted to brag on his omnipotence. It's not a coincidence that he's showing off another piece of art of his. This one is a Roman god, Neptune. And this is the final thought of the poem and worth us taking a minute to think about. Again, this is why poetry is not informational. The fun of poetry is not to get to the end and then just get all the information. The fun of poetry is to slow down and think the thoughts the poet is feeding you. Follow the clues. Hear the voice. Browning from over a hundred years ago wants us to give a few ideas about life and how to look at certain people that surface in every generation. The final image is a statue of the Roman god Neptune. When we see the statue, the first thing we think about is, huh, well, it's another piece of art. Browning has created a frame for his poem. He started and he ended with two pieces of art. Then the next thought should be, hmm, I wonder what Neptune is supposed to tell us. Who's Neptune? How does art piece number two connect with art piece number one? Well, obviously, Neptune is the god of the sea. The Greeks called him Poseidon. But what is he doing here? Well, he's taming a seahorse. What does that mean? This statue is not a static statue. It's not a bowl of fruit or a horse standing in a park. It's a Roman god taming a seahorse. Neptune is the god of the sea. He commands. He controls nature itself. He controls his environment. There's a suggestion of violence. By casting the sculpture in bronze, the duke has tamed and stopped the god taming the sea. The duke is the master of it all. The duke is in total control. Neptune has restrained the seahorse in exactly the same way as the duke has restrained his wife. He controls the vitality. Just as he has frozen the vitality in the statue, the vitality of his wife is also frozen. Hmm. Well, uh, and what is ironic about all of that? Um, is that in describing his ex-wife, he describes a woman totally, really in tune with life. I mean, she's connected to nature, to others, to animals. And um, she was the very expression of vitality to the point that her vitality is expressed in a smile that he tries to explain away really as adulterous. And he is bragging because he had the power to get rid of that smile, to get rid of that vitality. So uh, she could be reduced to a work of art and death, something he could never really accomplish in life. And to me, that's the most ironic thing of all. In order to destroy his wife, he preserved her for all eternity. We all know that art outlasts a single life band by destroying her vitality 
He uh, preserved her vitality. <laughs> oh, my head is spinning. You're making us crazy with all that. Well, maybe. But I am trying to point out how fun poetry can be when we let it. So let's put this poem back together, and I'll try to read it as dramatically as I can. That's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. I call that piece a wonder now. Fra Pandolf's hands worked busily a day, and there she stands. Wilt please you sit and look at her. I said, Frau Pandolf by design, for never read strangers like you that pictured countenance, that depth and passion of its earnest glance. But to myself they turned, since none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you but I, and seemed as they would ask me, if they durst, how such a glance came there. So not the first are you to turn and ask thus, Sir, t'was not her husband's presence only called that spot of joy into the duchess's cheek. Perhaps Frau Pandolf chanced to say, Her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much. Or paint must never hope to reproduce the faint half-blush that dies along her throat. Such stuff was courtesy. She thought and cause enough for calling up that spot of joy. She had a heart, how shall I say, too soon made glad, too easily impressed. She liked whatever she looked on, and her looks went everywhere. Sir, t'was all one. My favor at her breast, the dropping of the daylight in the west, the bough of cherry some officious fool broke in the orchard for her, the white mule she rode with round the terrace, all and each would draw from her alike the approving speech or blush, at least. She thanked men, good, but thanked somehow, I know not how, as if she ranked my gift of a 900-year-old's name with anybody's gift. Who'd stoop to blame this sort of trifling? Even had you skill in speech, uh, which I have not, to make your will quite clear to such a one and say, just this or that in you disgusts me, here you miss or there exceed the mark. And if she let herself be lessened, so nor plainly set her wits to yours forsooth and made excuse, even then would be some stooping, and I choose never to stoop." Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, whenever I passed her. But who passed without much the same smile? This grew. I gave commands, then all smiles stopped together. There she stands, as if alive. Well, please your eyes. We'll meet the company below, then. I repeat, the Count, your master's known munificence is ample warrant that no pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed, though... His fair daughter's self, as I avowed as starting, is my object. Nay, we'll go together down. Sir, notice Neptune, though, taming a seahorse, thought a rarity, which Claus of Innsbruck cast in bronze for me. Well done. Good dramatic reading. <laughs> oh, thank you. A great <laughs> writer can make things simple, like the simplistic understanding that this is an excellent portrait of a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> To a historical understanding, maybe it's an expose on the dark, dark side of the Renaissance. For a moralistic understanding, maybe we should beware of objectifying self-serving schmucks. 
But there's also an optimistic reading. You know, freedom and vitality cannot ever be contained. Life finds a way. To quote that philosopher Michael Crichton in Jurassic Park. (laughs) Thank you, Robert Browning. Well, there you go. Today's takeaway, stop reading for information. But read looking for the vitality. Yeah, read for vitality. (laughs) It's there. (laughs) Uh, Next episode, we will tell you the famous love story of Robert Browning and his celebrity wife, Elizabeth Barrett. And we'll read some bonafide love poems. So thank you for spending time with us today. We don't take that for granted. We appreciate you. Support us, if you don't mind, by tweeting an episode on your Twitter feed or your LinkedIn feed or your Facebook or your Instagram feed. Follow us on our social media. Check us out at howtolovelitpodcast.com. And text an episode to a friend and help us grow. Thank you. Peace out. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 